So here we go, lesson 31 of the study of Hebrews. We're in chapter 10 and we're going to start with verse 11 and it says this. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices which can never take place. But when the high, this high priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice... He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So the writer of the book of Hebrews wants his audience to know that the offering of Yeshua, the offering Yeshua has done is once and for all, eternal. And as I said last week, Yeshua's offering not only takes away unintentional sin, but it also iniquity. Or intentional sin. And I want to go into that a little more fully this week because, as some pointed out last week, there are some verses that would indicate otherwise. So we'll get to that, but first, we should understand just how complete Yeshua's redemptive work was. Notice that he says, the priest stands every day performing. But of Yeshua, he says, one time offering for sins. And then he sat down. He sat down because there's nothing left to do in that regard. Do you understand what that means? It means that his offering, though it was offered in the first century, bound by time. Because Messiah now sat down in eternity at the right hand of God. And so if you lived before the flood, let's say you were Adam or Chava, you have an offering for sin. It means that if This age goes on for another hundred years or so. You've been forgiven. And not just sin unintentional, but if you repent, iniquity, intentional sin. And I want to make one thing clear because there's a stern warning coming in this chapter about the need from those acts. Turn and turn toward being disciples and walking with God. But as far as forgiveness of sin or anything else needs to be done. If you are not repentant, he tells us this in verse 26 though, if we deliberately keep on sinning, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only the fearful expectation of judgment and of the raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Notice He says, if we deliberately keep on sinning, if we continue to sin without repentance, there's nothing left for us but judgment. The fact is, if someone continues to sin, for me, it raises doubts in my mind that he has ever known the salvation of God. And not only me, but John says this in chapter 2 of 1 John. He says, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Yeshua walked. You see, I, like John, doubt that a person who keeps on sinning with no remorse has even known Yeshua. And that doubt leads me not to judge his eternal salvation, 
But it does lead me to want to show that person a better way. It leads me to investigate whether or not he has truly seen the light. But as far as he, his eternal state, who's wise enough to judge that? Who's wise enough to say that so-and-so will not repent, maybe turn from sin, maybe not today, but maybe tomorrow? Well, not me. And I wouldn't want the job if it was available. I don't put myself in the shoes of the master in that regard. In the congregation, you know, I sometimes have to make judgments as who can walk through that door back there and who's banned. I make those judgments based on the safety of all of you. If that person is going to cause trouble, then in the community, he has to go. He gets my right foot of fellowship. However, if I see that person on the street, they're often surprised at how gracious and kind I am toward them. It's because the judgment I make regarding their interest into this community has nothing to do with their eternal state of affairs, but only their maturity as they are now, their behavior within the community, and the safety of everyone here. And you know something? I can separate the two. Because judgment, someone's eternal judgment is not my concern, is, is my concern, but it's not my responsibility. You know, the master himself tells us not to judge someone's eternal state. But scriptures tell us we should judge ourselves. Be the judge of our actions, our eternal state. That's enough for anyone. And if we all did that, we'd all be walking with the master. But here's my take on this. Even iniquity or intentional sin is covered if, and this is the big if, one turns away from it and walks with Yeshua. If we see someone sinning unrepentantly, do we warn them? Well, yes, we do. Do we judge them? Well, not me, but God does. I have enough problem judging my own actions, much less somebody else's. I'm busy enough with that. So the author goes on, and remember, sins are, and lawless acts are, are, are different in this regard because of intent. He says, the Holy Spirit also testifies about this, First he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, and their sin and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. And so here the author is telling that with Yeshua and the once and for all offering for sin and iniquity and the forgiveness that it secured, there's no longer any need for an offering for sin. From the first days of the age until the last days of the age, Yeshua's offering has secured forgiveness for those who have turned to God. You see, we owed a debt for our sin, and Yeshua paid the price. The debt has been forgiven. We were in bondage because of sin, and Yeshua through this offering, became our goel, our kinsman redeemer, setting us free from bondage. And finally, our sin and iniquity had alienated us from God. And through the korban, Yeshua, we have been reconciled to God. Not for a day, not for a year, but for eternity. We've been given through Yeshua an example of a life pleasing to God. And he has cleansed our consciences from sin. And that's very good news. That our sins and our iniquity are covered in this way. 
Because if Yeshua's offering were not for past and future, after we accepted Yeshua, I doubt maybe in a matter of days, maybe in a matter of weeks, I doubt if it would take months before we were in the same sinful separation from God that we were when we started. So the author continues, and he moves to exhortation for us to remain in Yeshua. He says, Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Yeshua, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body. Because of this, we have confidence, a boldness, because of Yeshua. Or at least we should have confidence. We should have a boldness. You know, the adversary works day and night to take that boldness and that confidence away from us. He tries to convince us that Yeshua's offering was not enough for our sin. Our sin was far beyond what Yeshua's salvation can cover. He does this because he knows Yeshua will never leave and forsake us. But if he can keep us from seeking Yeshua, that's just as good for him. Right? You see, that's a terrible lie. Because the gates of heaven are always open for those whose hearts are turned to God in repentance. And once turned to him, like I said before, Yeshua's taking care of the rest. He sat down. There's nothing left to do. And so we can, through Yeshua, always go before the Father. He sees us through the lens of Yeshua's offering. We're now in union with Yeshua. We're his bride, Scripture tells us. We have risen from the waters of immersion to a newness of life in Messiah Yeshua, seated with him in heavenly realms. And the author says, by a new and living way opened for us through, that, through the curtain that is his body. He uses the curtain in the temple being torn as a metaphor for the new way that has, made, has been made for us. You see, until the death of Yeshua... The way into the Holy of Holies was closed to man. We get an example of this in the temple. This is the metaphor he's using. The Holy of Holies was open to one man, one day a year, and the way was to walk through a gap between two curtains that were in front of the Holy of Holies. There were two curtains, each one opened on opposite end. So he would walk in the first curtain from the south, walk up this long corridor, and out, into the Holy of Holies in the north. So the metaphor the author is using is now that curtain to the Holy of Holies has now been opened through all of us through the offering of Yeshua. That curtain was torn. And not only is it open, but Yeshua is seated there. Our high priest is there pleading our case and God sees us through the lens of Yeshua's offering and the pleas of Yeshua for us. Verse 21 says, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. So the author says, We have this great high priest over the house of God, the Hebrew Kohen Hagadol, a high priest. He's already told us that our high priest is in the order of Melchizedek and he's seated with the Father. Our high priest through his offering allows us to draw near to God. 
And we can do that with a full assurance of faith. How do you draw near to God? You ever think about it? Because I'm going to tell you something. You couldn't go before God empty-handed. How do we appear before God with empty hands? Excuse me. Well, I can tell you this. The point is you can't. But the author will tell us, but he waits till chapter 13 to tell us. In verse 15 he says, Through Yeshua, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips that confess his name, and do not forget to do good and share with others for such sacrifices God is pleased. You see, if we go before him with praise, the fruit of our lips, a joyful thanksgiving for what he has done in our lives, and you don't really get the the sense of this until you look up the Hebrew word for praise, hallel. I put it up here. It means to shine, to praise, to boast, to make a fool of oneself, to act like a madman. We go him before him with full assurance of faith, with an offering of praise, with the boast of all Yeshua and the Father have done for us. Not in uncertainty or with a guilty conscience, or in fearful expectation, but with a boast over what Yeshua has done. You know, when I teach people to pray before God, I give them a 45-minute CD with praise music on it, a boast over what God has done and is doing in our lives. And I do this to bring them into his presence. When, you know, we have a great example of this boastful praise in 2 Samuel 6 with David. It says, David, wearing a linen Ephod danced before the Lord with all of his might while he and the entire house of Israel brought the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. And the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David. Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. That's Hallel. David praised God with all of his might and so much so he made such a fool over himself that his wife was embarrassed and despised him. That's how, God, that's how we should be praised God in our prayer closets at home. However, let me just say this. In the congregation, you have to be a little bit more reserved because you don't want to detract from somebody else's worship. As an example, we shouldn't be screaming and shouting to disturb someone else when we're in corporate worship. He says, our hearts sprinkled from a guilty conscience and bodies washed. You couldn't go into the temple in an unclean state. You had to be cleansed. You had to go through the waters of immersion. See, this is all temple imagery. Washings and sprinklings were part of the temple service. Remember, the the temple service is a reminder of the Mount Sinai experience. Where Moses sprinkled the people with the blood of the offerings and the people washed and sanctified themselves for three days. All of it a shadow. And what the author is saying is, that's been done for us. You can go before him. You can have confidence when you do. And now he's laid out this argument. And he's going to move the reader to the next phase of the lesson plan. And that's faith. Confidence in what has happened. Everything he's told him thus far must be accepted by faith. The author will tell us about faith. (coughs) Excuse me. In chapter 11 and verse 1, he says, Now faith 
is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And this is what the ancients were commended for. These people whom he's writing to, you know, they never witnessed Yeshua's ascension. Most. You have to trust God. They, like you, weren't at the crucifixion of Messiah. Most have come to faith as we have through the hearing of the good news. Well, friends, the good news and the living God must be accepted by faith. And it's faith and confidence in, or we could say being sure or certain of, what is unseen, that pleases God. It's what the ancients were commended for, and it's what we're commended for. And that's why the adversary tries so hard to plant seeds of doubt in the mind as to the completeness of what Yeshua has done for you. Because doubt is the opposite of praise. And it's why when we grumble and complain about the circumstances in our lives, it's offensive to God, because that too is the opposite of praise. And the author says this then, he says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. I love that. Let us hold unswervingly to this hope that we have. And what is the hope we profess? Well, it's everything that he's spoken of. The completeness of Yeshua's redemption. The redemption he secured for us. And why does he say, let us hold fast unswervingly? Because the only thing that can separate you from God is turning away from Messiah Yeshua. The gates of repentance are always open but they're only open for those who hold fast, who turn from sin and iniquity. They are called the gates of repentance because to enter you must be repentant. No-brainer, right? If you forsake the gift of God after tasting the riches of the kingdom and don't turn back, there's nothing left for you except the fearful expectation of judgment. That's what's left. The hope and the confession we have is that Yeshua is the son of the living God, the Messiah, the son of man. It's the profession that was given to Peter, that Messiah, when, when he spoke with Messiah. And Messiah said it's what he would build his kahal on. It's the rock, the foundation, the revelation that can only come from the Father. And so the author has told us, it is the message that Yeshua is superior to all other messages, messengers. He's the Messiah. You see, the Son of God is a revelation that can come from the Father alone in heaven. What did Yeshua say to Peter? He said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Yona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And on this rock I'll build my kahal. It's the revelation that we covered in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2 he said, there's a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And that rest begins today if you hear his voice and do not harden your hearts as they did in, in the wilderness. That's our hope. That's our confession. And our lives must follow that confession. Because, Yeshua, because of Yeshua, we are not of this world. Not even Texas. Where is Jesse? Right, Jesse? Not even Texas. We're not of this world because of Yeshua. We are of his kingdom. 
We have entered into his kingdom, his rest, today because we heard the message, a message above all other messages. It's also that we have a new covenant with a new mediator. We can now hear the words of God because that's what Yeshua speaks. We no longer need men to mediate for us or teach us his ways. That was something they were never able to do anyway. The mediation of men was unable to bring us close to God, but now God's Son is our mediator, and he has made a new way through the curtain into the presence of God, and God will not reject us because he sees us through the lens of Yeshua's redemption. He told us that he's the high priest of a superior priesthood, of which the Levitical was a shadow. He's the mediator of a new covenant, of which the first was a shadow. He mediates a Torah, of which the first was a shadow. The reality of all of these things is what we now possess if we hold on unswervingly. He's faithful to deliver on those promises. We can count on him to be there when we call, to speak to our hearts, to show us the way. He'll not go up on a mountain and disappear for 40 days. He'll not die and have to leave the mediation to another because he's eternal and he's eternally faithful. You know, we're about to enter into the faith chapter in a week or so. And all of our chicks are going to come home to roost. He tells us in verse 24, he says, Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up the meeting together as some in their habit of doing, but let us encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching. You know, every preacher uh, you've ever heard has used this passage to keep the pews full, right? I use it that way sometimes myself. But I got to tell you that the imperative in the verse is not that, it's the encouraging, the good deeds, the love, the meeting together is just a necessity to accomplish the other, right? Our expression, uh, the expression of our faith is our actions. Faith is confidence in what is unseen, a total disregard for what is seen. And our actions should reflect that. Faith is persevering and trusting in what is unseen, even unto death if necessary. Faith is putting your life on the line for God because you know that you're only a sojourner here. And God has promised to the faithful a life that is life without end. It's a disregard for all that seems real in this age. For what now is unseen but soon to come. And we all know what that is. That's the Messiah Yeshua and his kingdom. That's how faith is expressed by a martyr. Holding on even as he hangs on a stake or whatever, or in a fire. But how, let me tell you this, faith is also shown in this life by how we walk through this age, by love and good deeds. Love and good deeds are the expression of faith, and without those things, James tells us faith is dead. Meeting together and encouraging one another is the other way we express our faith. We get together, we should have the same total regard for what is seen 
and speak of and encourage one another in what is unseen. And you know, that's why I, I hate to get involved with conspiracy theories and all that kind of junk because you got your eyes on the world. Keep your eye on him and you'll walk through life knowing that man can do nothing lasting to you. We believers, you know, we meet together. We have churches filled to the brim each and every week. But I have to tell you that they've forgotten the other half of the command. They've forgotten the spurring and encouraging one another on to good deeds. You know, our churches don't speak of things that are real. You know, that this one of these preachers, he's got this minute that every morning that on TV, the winner's minute or something. All he talks about is this psychologist or this person or that person. Never worth nothing from the word of God. Give me a break. Right? We focus, when we focus on what, in the, what is in the age now, that's a lack of faith. Many churches have turned to little more than support centers for getting us through this life. We have trained psychologists to fix people's troubled minds. We have financial advisors to help people with their finances. What we don't have is a living out of the hope we profess. We need classes on hearing from God. We need teachers of the new covenant. We need to walk out our faith with love and good deeds. And if we did that, we'd have no need for financial advisors. Love and good deeds would take care of the troubled minds. Hearing from God would calm the storms of people's lives. But you don't hear those things in church. And I know we've got trained psychologists in our midst, and I'm sure she'd be the first to admit this, that if we truly had faith in Messiah's forgiveness, if we looked in the mirror and confessed it each and every day, that forgiveness and the love that he has for us, and because of that, as we looked in the mirror, we'd also tell ourselves we loved us. Because he loves us. We'd have no need for the services of the psychologists. Amen? Good deeds. What are good deeds? Well, good deeds in a Hebraic mindset are the positive commands. It's doing the positive commands. Good deeds are not the 613 commandments. Because most of those aren't even for us. Good deeds are also the negative commands made positive. Good deeds are the second greatest command lived out. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's a good deed. Let me give you an example. Yeshua, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 9 through 14, it's recorded, going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there looking for a reason to accuse Yeshua. They asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And he said to them, if any one of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And so he stretched it out and it was completely restored. Just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Yeshua. You see, this is a perfect example. Those looking to accuse Yeshua were keeping the Sabbath. They were not working on the Sabbath. They were in essence keeping Torah. Both were keeping the commands of Torah. However, Yeshua was performing a good deed by healing on the Sabbath. Let your love and good deeds shine before men. 
So while I can say that good deeds are keeping the commands of God, we, we cannot necessarily say that keeping the commands of God are always good deeds. They don't necessarily equate, which goes back to the point I made earlier. When we spoke of the difference between the new and the old covenants, the first covenant and the new covenant, the difference is the commands lived out not by the rules of men, but the commands lived out by a heart turned toward God. You can find the same thing in the Talmud. You know the Talmud says this in Shabbat 133a. Wherever you find a positive command and a neg negative command contradicting, if you can fill them both, that's preferable. But if not, let the positive command come and supersede the negative. Good deeds are the positive commands of Torah done for the glory of the one who is good. Good deeds are the negative commands of the Torah beautified into positive commands for the, one, for the glory of the one who is good. And it's the meeting together that gives us the opportunity to see the needs of others and, the and develop the love for one another to relieve those needs. And that's why it's essential not to give up the meeting together. We are the family of God, and a family dwells together. Amen? Let's bring the worship team up.